Welcome to Directionally Correct, a people analytics podcast with Colin Scott, today's guest, Joy Oliver. There we go. That is so much better. Joy, you are the best. Can I start with that? You're the best. <laughs> You're the best. I'm, Cole, I will end this call right now. <laughs> yeah, I would equalize you. I do not have any truck for that. No. Yeah. How do you two know each other? Like, Joy and I are on, uh, I don't know, tangential or I don't even remember. Sort of connected teams, but are I we know. we professional practice together? That's yeah, okay. what it was. Professional yeah. practice uh, subcommittee in PSYOP. So that's... Uh, yeah, if we work together. I can't remember. Were you on that big survey that they did uh, for practitioners? I was on the one that went poorly. So okay. then I think they redesigned it. <laughs> well, we had a nothing... terrible response rate and bad results. Oh, nothing no. I do ever do- goes poorly. So it must not have been that one. So I don't know. No, it was great because then the folks that took it over um, redesigned the distribution uh, of it and it actually was probably the impetus that it needed to be redone so you know uh the main thing that i did there which i don't think you were involved in joy was the mentoring the speed mentoring and the peer mentoring and all that stuff when i was on that committee no i i didn't do anything related to that we did the competency work which is if you look back on it now and you think of how far we've advanced analytically um the methods for that are so uh of their time and now if I think about the way we would do it now and how much faster it would go, it's it's fun to look back at, you know, how the, the limitations of what you were able to do in the time that you were doing it. Have you that ever is... done done any stuff like that, Scott? Like served on any of the SOP committees or anything like that? Uh, I don't know how much I can say, but I sat in on a awards committee this year. So uh, looking over student nice. uh, uh, transcripts and like their research and absolutely blown away. Like I could never compete with sort of things that these kids are doing. Just like super advanced ML work, uh, mm-hmm. crazy qualitative analyses. Like it, it put me to shame. Definitely. Yeah, and I hear they love being called kids too. You know, <laughs> <laughs> have you all listened? I I listen to a lot of stand-up comedy, which I'll explain the reasons why later, or you may infer them later. Um, and Jim Gaffigan's his most recent one. He he's got five kids, and he, he says every once in a while he's just slapped in the face by his age. And and when I'm <laughs> reviewing the work that that people who are either recent grads or even the last five years are doing it's just like slapped in the face with my my age and and it's i i find it very good for the ego though to to remind yeah. myself if i'm getting a little bit too big for my my britches what i can't do is it's always a good reminder I'll, I'll tell you one of the greatest benefits that i had from it is just uh going over all their references like all, all that sort of yeah. research just totally yeah. out of touch with what is going on now it's it's so hard to keep up I mean, like you get sci up once a year, and even that isn't a full download like you can get in grad school. The only way I've been able to keep up, and I wouldn't even say I can, um, but most of the folks that I went to school with, I would say probably seventy percent are in academia. Mm-hmm. So really? I try to keep it, yeah. So I'll try to keep in touch with them and and reach out and ask them what they're up to and what they've been doing. 
Um, I've had to call my advisor in the past for, for guidance and questions on um, <laughs> execution on research related to work he did a long time ago. Just uh, it, I, I don't have as the access that we used to have. And, and no. even then, sometimes it's hard to distill it if, if it's written in a way that's not um, easily accessible. I find myself like uh, scouring Google Scholar and essentially looking at the citation counts just to kind of like get yeah. some sort of like or try to find it, whatever's available in free text. <laughs> yes, full text. yes, yeah, full text. Give, give yeah. me that PDF, that free yes, PDF. Please. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> everything else is a little bit more difficult to to access once it goes behind the firewall. And even in places I've worked, we just haven't had access to like PsycInfo, you know. So yeah, well, speaking of, send me their articles. <laughs> Have you guys ever heard of consensus? You ever heard of this? Um, uh, I, I've no. never used it, but but somebody sent it to me earlier this week, and it's like, a, it's kind of like Google Scholar, I guess, where it's a it's a free place to search all the scientific literature. I was wondering if anybody else actually used it, but I, I've never used it. But somebody sent it to me, so I was like, that's pretty cool. That seems. Can funny. you send it to me? How do you spell it? Yeah, let me find the link real quick, and maybe okay. we can include it in the show notes. Um, okay, sounds great. Again, I may it may not be a credible app. I, I oh, caveats okay. withstanding, but uh, it seemed cool. I, I really like the the notion behind it. Well, since we're you know, since we're sharing resources, uh, I came across. So I don't know who built it, but it's a shiny dashboard that collects all the different I/O articles over the years, and you just I kind of like plug in what you're interested in, and uh, wow. it spit it spits it out. It's beautiful. I have to dig that up as well. That would be a huge help. Yeah, I'll have to check that out too. The, the yeah, research... you know it would be even bigger help is if like you never had to do a literature review again and it just did it for you. <laughs> that would be even better. <laughs> well, I mean, it's funny you say that. We have some of these like AI uh, writing tools that are coming along. They'll write blogs for you. They'll write technical documents for you. Uh, I think it's like Moonbeam or something like that. And it's, boy, talk about being able to Undergrads are going to be able to write papers like crazy now. <laughs> Did they ever write papers? I mean, <laughs> I'm saying that the quality of the writing is going to go up dramatically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it? I don't, I'm not sure that it will. I mean, it, not that AI is not flawless and that expectation is not fair, but every once in a while you read a funny AI story where, uh, you know, it, it's, it ends up adding like mushrooms to your ice cream or something ridiculous. So uh, you, you never can tell. You still actually have to review what you generated. Oh yeah, this is this is a picture version. But have you guys seen this picture floating around where they it was they told an AI to show salmon swimming up a river, and it yes! actually uses sliced I did see salmon. That. Yeah, yeah. Oh, funny. <laughs> yeah, sliced and it's prepared like... fillets. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, and it's actually, if you look at it, it's beautiful. It's just sure. incredibly weird. <laughs> I was like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Modern art, that, right? Yeah, it, that's true. It probably is modern art. I, I plugged in a few like keywords into this like Moonbeam and like uh, had it spit out a blog. And uh, I'm, I'm doing some network analysis work right now. Like it's pretty esoteric sort of stuff. And I plugged in keywords and it wrote an outline for me, sub bullets. It was wonderful. I couldn't yeah. believe how well it was doing. That's good to hear. So all you undergrads out there <laughs> who aren't listening. 
We're, we're we're essentially boomers to them, Scott. They're, they're yeah. not listening to us. Oh, and I'm a bit older than both of you, so I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm a, maybe the silent generation to them. <laughs> oh, well, what I love about Joy is like she gives me like youngest child vibes. Like uh, you're super creative, you're fun, but you can get the work done as well. Like, did did you grow up as like the youngest child? Uh, thank you for that pre-planned question, Scott. Um, <laughs> I am not the youngest child. My, I have one younger brother, but uh, there are nine of us and uh, six boys and three girls. And um, the first seven were born in nine years. And then there was a three-year gap. And then I, uh, myself and my younger brother. So we lived in my grandmother's house growing up. And um, my mom is from a very large family too. She's one of seven. So I have, I think, 21 or 22 first cousins. And my dad was an only child. So um, we went from, uh, we, we, we're now all in 40 plus years old, but it was, it was a really fun childhood. Uh, probably not normal anymore, maybe. And, uh, and I'm gonna, probably going to reference Jim Gaffigan again. He always has that joke about large families are like waterbeds they used to be everywhere and now they're just weird and that's kind of <laughs> what uh i think of sometimes when i think of our family but my siblings and i are well i should i should, shouldn't speak for them i'll just speak for myself i am um, very 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 proud of all of them they've uh put together some pretty cool and different careers and uh their families are all really fun and though we don't live super close to them we do get to see them fairly frequently my, my like, first thought was like, if there was an apocalypse, your family would be great to repopulate the earth. You know, <laughs> I think that that would be perfect for that. My oldest brother jokes sometimes that we were trying to create like a a breed of giants. Um, uh, so I think he'd be <laughs> flattered by that. But I don't know. My all my kids are redheads, and and we're not the hardiest bunch sometimes. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah. I, I I get anxiety over my small family in like Christmas, but I mean like, this must be like astronomical for you. I mean, no, oh my that's God. my preference. Um, I am. I think I'm extremely disruptive as a coworker, so uh, because I'm used to noise and and volume. So I've every time I've shared an office, which I, I usually do by choice if I can, I put headphones on and music so that I do not talk to my coworker. But I, I enjoy just being working in a room with other people, but it's really hard for me not not to talk to them and ask them way too many personal questions and yeah. That that whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, we've actually talked before about the the perils of the open office concept on here. So I think that's Oh, I loved kind of it. A, but yeah, I'm an outlier. Yeah, I, it was great for me. Yeah. I found it wonderful for my focus and concentration, but I was surrounded by people that were sick and really miserable. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it probably wasn't great after a while for my um, like contagion, you know, and burnout and whatnot, because everybody was so unhappy, but I thought it was great. Well, Joy, maybe tell us a little bit about your experience or your academic pedigree or, you know, maybe some of your you know, the work that you've done in the past, what, what, what should our listeners know about your history? Um, other than that, I probably talk too much is I think that I have a, uh, maybe non-traditional, but who knows what's traditional anymore. Career no history, but 
Yeah, um, I've been able to do what I want to do and still be a generalist, which is really, really fun. And uh, I've gotten to do a lot of different things um, in IO psychology and just been really lucky to be able to keep moving in the direction that I wanted to go um, while not having to specialize. I don't know that a lot of folks get to have that kind of flexibility, but it, it's been, I've been really lucky. I've had to so, change jobs a bit to do that, but yeah. Yeah. So you said like uh, a lot of your uh, cohort members at uh, what university of Tennessee, that's where you got your PhD. Yeah, that's uh, correct. Yeah. They, they went to academia, but mm -hmm. you took a different route. Can you tell us about uh, the path you took? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I wasn't, I wanted to be an academic, but I'm not very well suited to it. I'm not a good teacher. So um, I, my husband can attest to that. He accidentally sat in on one of my classes and fell asleep. So I thought like that was pretty immediate feedback that this is maybe not a good choice for me. Um, and so I, I went, uh, I didn't have a lot of applied experience in grad school. So I um, looked into a postdoc uh, through the National Research Council and I ended up going to the Air Force Research Lab in Mesa, Arizona, doing some training evaluation. And um, back in the day, that was the um, F-16 training test bed. And, and it was really fun to, to be there and get in the simulators and uh, be involved so, so in the work. You're, you're training pilots to fly planes? This is what you're doing? I was not, no. Uh, these were simulators. So the, the pilots that were there were coming in to log some training hours in their simulation test bed in the lab. Um, and then uh, what their, uh, what my role was, was slightly different. I was looking at um, training evaluation, particularly in how to reduce variance across individuals, because a lot of training evaluation just looks at um, improvement in usually the mean. Yeah. But one of the things that's is really important for team-based efforts like that is reducing the differences in performance across people, especially in teams where you may have to swap individuals out. So you need to improve in general, but you also need to narrow some of those gaps between folks as well. So that was what my postdoc. Yeah, I think that's going to be like a really important concept moving forward as, you know, we become more team-based, more networked, et cetera. Like, how do you have a fungible workforce that can be kind of plug and play to different projects? Because you have to you know, pivot on a dime, like all these sort of like, you know, cliche sort of terms. But yeah, yeah, yeah. to your point, if you just build a team around like one sort of like bespoke project or some sort of uh, bespoke uh, skill set, eh, it's good for one thing, essentially. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that you're able to have individuals with comparable levels of abilities that are transferable, which mm -hmm. is really hard to do, if your team requires that, um, to be able to succeed in the task that they're doing, um, it's it's definitely a necessity to try to bring everybody to the same level and, but also improve the overall level at the same time. There's a lot of work that we probably label teamwork that's not really though, um, <laughs> that where one individual can carry it. So, <laughs> I think there's some folks that have done some research on the the definition of of what teamwork really is uh, from the lab back in the day as well. Well, once again, we're back at like an undergraduate research yeah, project. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What I always, always, if I remember correctly, the definition that I always used was 
teamwork requires interdependence. A group mm -hmm. is just a, a collection of individuals, whereas a team has interdependence amongst tasks. Um, I'm wondering though, sorry, would you consider yourself, Joy, um, an expert in like the, the scientific or the analytical realm in team effectiveness or where would you say your expertise really lies? Uh, I don't know that I'm an expert anymore in anything except maybe management of researchers. So uh, we'll talk to us about the, that then. Yeah. So that's the generalist part of me is, you know, I, the academic career goal was more to actually hopefully end up um, in a situation where I could advocate for other researchers. I love research, but I love researchers more. And so managing and helping them develop their own careers and also being able to kind of clear the path for them to do what they want to do that I know will actually benefit the organization has um, pretty much been my job for, I'd say, probably the last seven years or so. Um, and it's what I enjoy most, you know, so I have to be, I was say I'm, I'm a little more E-shaped than T-shaped. I can't be too deep in any one area to be able to manage across different domains, which, I mean, most of them are related to IO psychology anyway. Um, but I, I, I've not been able to put the time or, or the level in in a long time to be able to go super, super deep in one area. I've definitely had to go a little bit broader and a little less deep. Well, Joy, one, one thing I think about, like, Plenty of our listeners are in the academic context and in the practitioner side of things as well that are actually leading these type of teams or leading this type of research. Any kind of words of wisdom that you would give from your experience about doing that effectively and, and motivating teams and making sure that their, you know, their productivity levels are higher, whatever the focal metric is for your organization? Yeah, you have to wear many hats. So... When I first started out, the one thing I wanted to focus on was more the individual level of development and not as much being able to understand the system or the context of how it was going to affect someone's trajectory. As I've gotten older and had more experience and in different environments, I've become, I think, a little bit more of a systems thinker when it comes to the, um, not necessarily staffing, but the workload management for different projects, the match of individual skill sets to what the work requires, the trajectory of that same individual, thinking about who would be the right person to help them develop in one particular area, knowing that I might not have that um, expertise anymore or never did. And just being more aware of who I am, what I do well, what I do not do well, and then making enough connections across the organization. And I'm not talking like drive-by connections frequent touch points with people, getting to know them, getting to know what matters to them so that not only can I help them advance their own needs and at the end uh, benefit the organization, but they can also help my team. And I think mm -hmm. part of that is like, I've said to a family member of ours, um, in big families, kids can't get everything that they need from their parents. It's just not possible. Because it, especially in my family, how are two parents going to meet every single need for nine children? That's, that's just unrealistic. So big families need allies outside and they need to expand on their relationships to, to kind of maybe fill in the gaps. And not that I'm a parent role in the team because that's the wrong analogy altogether. But it does make me think, you know, I cannot be, nor should any manager try to be everything to the people that are on their team. It's just inappropriate and it actually won't help out. 
um, the folks on their team in the long run anyway, to making connections for them to meet the right people, have the right experiences and, and just being that um, connector is really, uh, I think, been the, 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 not to use my name, but the joy of my career for the last uh, <laughs> six or seven years. She did I it. I love it. She did yeah. it. <laughs> I love it so much. And I, I think you're absolutely correct, especially when you get up to the level that uh, you are at. You, you need to be able to connect across different groups. Is, is there like some sort of like heuristic that you use or like general framework uh, to match people to projects or to decide the sort of skills that are needed or? Maybe we don't take on a project because we, we lack these sort of abilities. Yeah, I didn't have any of that visibility when I was starting out in management, and I didn't understand the financial implications of decisions I was making either. Um, but the job I had about maybe five years ago in the small company, I did a lot of pricing of consulting engagements. Um, I think I did maybe 30 pricing um, yeah. estimates in a year for labor related to a product spec. And so not only did I have to write the technical approach and then sign all the workload, but then I do all the pricing and run it by the approvers for pricing and work with the sales team for how to market it. And I feel like that helped me expand because I didn't have any financial or accounting training at all in grad school, nor did I have an undergrad. So um, it was a, a really good lens for me to remember that you know while i have ideas on the ideal way to do research there's constraints and for a lot of researchers they're invisible but they're not invisible you know the sooner you come to terms with them and you integrate them uh, the easier it is to execute and and then you can start learning some heuristics for how to execute in those boundaries it's amazing like this comes up over and over like the the most successful ios that we see have this sort of like diverse diverse experiences in their uh, history that they can lean on from like other fields, et cetera. And it sounds like you can borrow from uh, this, this pricing aspect, which helps you manage a team of IOs currently. Yeah. I, I mean, I just um, worked really closely with our salespeople. So um, I think if, if you come to work and, and you know a little bit about the, the folks that you're working with, and, but then you also are aware of, of what you, you all can learn from each other. Um, and then just put the time in, especially when you need uh, to tap into their knowledge base. The, the folks that were helping me do pricing in the sales function in that organization had like 15, 20 years of sales experience. And so they didn't even realize the um, probably the value of the knowledge that they were imparting because it was so grained in them anyway and to me it was like gold so i would just say you know keep teaching me more um and it, it was it was great because the, the more um i worked with them the more i worked with them so we were able to to keep that kind of reinforcement going because we were we were um learning about where we could uh partner together more effectively we'll do it the, the money question i have for you because i think you're uniquely positioned to answer this is and I'll kind of preface it with this science in the real world is difficult, right? Doing yeah. science in the real world is difficult. Can you talk to us about, I mean, you manage a team of researchers and it seems like you've got a lot of experience in this, in the work context as well. How do you run effective science and experiments in the workplace? How do you do that? 
find the right partners. <laughs> so there's there's three big barriers in my head to what the uh, for experimentation. The first one is is your ethics question, and you're going to work with your legal team, and you're going to work with comms and PR, and you're going to figure out how to do this work with human subjects protection, uh, and figuring out whether it's the right experience at the right time that's going to lead to good outcomes. Um, so that that bar is usually the highest to hit. Um, the second one is, do you have the right researchers? Do they have the right capabilities and skills to actually execute this work and design it effectively so that you have confidence in in what you've put together? I do not have that skill set, but I work with many, many people who do. And so setting them up for success by helping manage the first part and the human subjects access and legal review and whatnot. Um, and then the last one is access. Do you have a partner in the organization that's willing to allow you to do some experimentation? And a lot of times you're not going to convince that partner through data. That's one piece, but that's not enough. I, I always think it's, it's you're going to need to have like a value statement, the opportunity, but there's also going to be some understanding of the individual that you're working with. And to be able to say, um, I know what you're interested in from your own mission in this organization, and here's how we're going to get you to meet that. I think Max Bloomberg was talking the, about this a little bit from like the Jedi mind tricks that he was talking about. And on oh, his you listen to the, the People Analytics <laughs> yeah. World podcast with yeah. me. <laughs> so um, I just had never termed it that way. I think that's really smart. Um, and and just being able to, to craft the what's in it for me too for the person so that they feel some ownership as well in the success at it. So if you, if you can usually manage the ethics with all your partners in the organization, that'll help you conduct this work right you have the right people now you have to sell it so, so yeah well once it once again like you're, you're talking about your uh, background with working with sales folks and you yeah. can use this yeah. to influence with internally yeah um when i was probably one year i guess out of grad school uh, my manager at Humro, I wish I could say her name, but she'd probably so be so embarrassed because <laughs> she's not she's not an attention seeking person in any way gave me the best advice of my career ever. I was really, really frustrated on this one conversation because we were discussing different um, uh, different approaches to uh, missing data imputation. And I was like, I'm right on this one. And she just said, Joy, nobody cares if you're right if you can't sell it. And I was like, <laughs> that is gold. I think I've repeated that maybe four or five times in the last year, but yes. it's, it's burned into my brain forever and and if you really believe that what you're doing is right or what your teammates or your colleagues are doing is right and you know why you're being blocked it's actually easier to figure out how to work with the person that is blocking you or the part of the organization that is blocking you because you'll understand like oh i have to think of a different way to get through this or how to partner with them so you have to have a lot of tools in the tool belt when it comes to um sales and and but you also can't be superficial about it I think sometimes salespeople get tagged with a, an unfair perception that they're not genuine. Mm -hmm. And that's just not true. Um, one of my brothers. Yes, salespeople sales. are always genuine. Yeah. One it's, of my brothers. It's the worst is in ones sales. that aren't. And he's the most genuine person. And I always joke, he could sell you what you already own. But it, it, he also <laughs> knows more about you than you've forgotten about yourself. And he knows it because he cares. So that's, that's a, yeah, I think that's an underutilized skill in our environment that we're not just selling for revenue. We're selling based on building a relationship and trying to get the right thing done.
we, we, we've seen this in uh, that the folks that are most effective at you know, making big waves in the network are those folks that uh, proactively reach out to individuals. They make connections early, but importantly, they uh, take a personal connection. It's not like a quid pro quo yeah. or like, what can you do for me? It's, hey, Joy, like you come from a big family. That's super cool. Let me learn about that. You got kids, you got a dog. And how's, is the dog sick? Like last time I talked to you, the dog wasn't doing well. I'm going on too much about dog right now, but <laughs> the point is like <laughs> it, it, it makes me feel like you know who I am, Scott. Exactly. You know, I have two very old dogs. I have a 15 and a half year old dog and a 10 year old dog. And you've seen them on, on calls, I think, and, and they're important to me. So I'm like, oh, he's been paying attention. Dropping little morsels of knowledge on who the individual is, I think increases. Absolutely. Yeah, your likability and likability is an underrated thing. I definitely wouldn't know, but well, Joy, do you want to join us in the nerdery here, quick, real quick? Yes, but you have to remind me about the nerdery. Are we going to? What are we going to nerd out on? So this is uh, going to be we'll, like we'll nerd a, out on uh, a few things. Okay. This is going to yeah. be like a uh, dissertation style defense where you, you oh know, boy. defend these okay. articles. No, no, clearly. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, so, first and foremost, uh, I have something to share a, a recent publication that I'm an author on. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really, this is the brainchild of uh, the great Michael Arena. The general idea is that uh, it's called the adaptive hybrid model. It's in uh, uh, Management Business Review. And there are different phases to the innovation process. So you have the idea collection phase where you're going out generating ideas. You have the uh, product development phase where you uh, uh, iterate on things. And then to your point earlier, Joy, about like if you build something but don't release it to the world, it doesn't matter. You have the idea scaling phase. If you're going through this process, there are different sort of connections that are needed for each of them. So in the idea generation phase, you need to have these sort of like weak ties, go out, collect ideas. And then once you have that idea, uh, you have these strong connections for people to tell you that your product isn't so great and like you can uh, refine it, et cetera. Then once you have this product again, you need weak ties to scale it out to the rest of the organization. So when we're talking about a return to office sort of situation, like we're kind of like in limbo right now where some organizations are like, we're always remote or we're always going to be working in the office. These sort of like dictates are coming down. Uh, the general premise of this article is that be mindful of the phase of innovation that you're in and the sort of connections that are needed and uh, bring people into the office based on this phase. So once again, like if you're generating ideas, bring together tangential teams, let them share information. If you're trying to iterate on a product, very close connections between internal teams. And once again, scaling projects out, you need these sort of uh, loose connections to come together. But it's a very uh, intentional way of bringing people back together, which thus far hasn't really been talked about. Well, first of all, I'm super proud of you, Scott. Um, I to to be published this way, I think it's amazing. Even if you are the last author on the publication, <laughs> you still matter, you, buddy. You didn't have to say that, <laughs> but it's very compliment. true. Compliment, yeah. <laughs> Backhanded compliment. Yeah. Ooh, no, no, but it, it's really great work. I, I'm just wondering, like, from your perspective, Scott, like, 
what if if uh, an organization could only take away like one thing and go and do it based on this research, what would it be? It would be be intentional about how you connect people and what you're trying to optimize for. In this case, uh, I work for a tech company. Innovation is a critical component here. Essentially, you're not making blanket statements anymore. You're saying we are being intentional how we're bringing people back. We can sort of like balance the uh, employees' needs with that of the organization, which no one is really talking about if you read sort of the popular press. Yeah, when when I did that session, I, I know you weren't able to come to it, Scott, but with Alec at EEN as a part of uh, the Center for Effective Organizations, the word we really latched onto was be intentional, right? Yes. If you're going to have an outcome, be intentional and be intentional about the outcomes you want to affect, but also the experiences you want your employees to have. I think I think those are really the the takeaways of this type of research. But but Joy, did you have additional questions here, or do you want to move on to the next uh, no, part I of the nerdery? <clears throat> I just had one question because you hear this sometimes anecdotally, but then sometimes in the in the press about the intentionality to get together for different phases of innovation, while at the same time trying to balance some of what you read related to the spontaneity and its role in innovation. Um, so I wanted to ask, you know, do you have thoughts on, on the role of, of those things that we read about in the news yeah. that folks are missing that water cooler, not that we have water coolers anymore, but those kind of um, impromptu knowledge sharing, and but also while at the same time understanding that for this purpose, there is an intentionality required. How to balance those two? Yeah, I, I think the whole goal of return to office is to uh, increase these sort of serendipitous interactions that occur, like at the water cooler, in the elevator, etc. Um, in the past, you've sort of seen some sort of like uh, management sort of dictates that, uh, like, oh, these employees are just talking too much, like they're they're not getting any sort of work done. But I mean, you can mm -hmm. only talk about like the football game that happened last night so often until you say like. Well, like, what's going on with that project over there? Well, it or, depends like, on the football game, Scott, because if it's the University <laughs> of Tennessee football game, I think we could keep going. Right? I, I think you're in a very strong position right now after so. the win yeah. against Alabama, so. definitely. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, th th these are sort of like the uh, weak ties, sort of information that you wouldn't necessarily have if you're in a uh, work-from-home environment. It's, it's hard to connect with people uh, unless you are very intentional about doing so. And even yeah. so, like connecting remotely kind of sucks, really. Yeah, I, I think you're calling out something that is also maybe not paid enough attention to is that there is some planning and intention required in innovation. I think we've undersold that part of the innovation cycle and and that uh, a lot of writing or, or thinking or even discussing innovation prior to maybe some of the work that you've just published kind of makes it sound like it just happens like lightning in a bottle. And I think your work is going to help dispel some of that. That's that's uh... well, Scott, can, can I jump in here? Because I, I want to build Please. on this. This is something I've been reflecting on. And I think your research could really shine some light on it. Where you used the word um, serendipity earlier, and then Joy's talking about kind of, again, that being intentional. This This concept I've been reflecting on recently is manufactured serendipity like mm -hmm. how do you manufacture it and be really intentional about it is that kind of the part like i know you guys probably didn't use that phrase but is that kind of part of the thesis behind this work that's that's definitely part of the thesis of 
the idea generation phase. And uh, just to be fair, uh, Rob Cross, had a great network analysis sort of guru guy, he's been talking about this for years. So it's a lot of uh, borrowed work. But overall, like if, if you study the history of innovation, like the idea of a lone genius just doesn't occur. Like it just doesn't happen. It's all people mm -hmm. building off the ideas of other people. And so that's where you get people together. One, one group's doing one thing, another group's doing another thing. Hey, let's bring these two ideas together. Just like Joy uh, got some experience in sales as well as uh, pricing, she can bring those ideas together and be just a kick-ass manager down the line. Well, do you mind if we kind of pivot to our, our next article, Scott? I don't want to do that. <laughs> All right, let's let's talk about you some more, Scott. How, how's your week going, man? What's going on here? Uh, you know, well, one thing. Um, so I've been I've been kind of doing some reading lately in in the startup space, and if you if you do any reading in this space, you a lot of people come across this series of essays by Paul Graham. He was one of the founders mm -hmm. of Y Combinator, who it, you know many many famous tech startups came through the Y Combinator uh, incubator. And last year or two years ago, he published this article about how to think for yourself. And I thought it was really good. Um, and I think, Joy, it, it kind of harkens back to some of the things we've already talked about here, but it really has three things that they recommend in terms of how to think for yourself. One is fastidiousness about the truth. The second is independent mindedness or kind of the resistance to being told what to do. And then the last is curiosity. And the, and the funny part is you guys actually earlier were talking about, you know, meeting a stranger and asking them random questions about their dog. He actually talks about this in the article, like having an insatiable need for curiosity about other human beings and how everybody has something unique to offer if you really dig deep enough. So I don't know, what, how do you think unconventionally or how do you think for yourself, Joy? I don't know that I do. I have to read this article a bit more, but I, <laughs> I definitely don't think I'm uh, an, an independent thinker or uh, I don't typically fit the term of outside the box. I, I think I just, one of the, one of the things that I, I think maybe he might be touching on is um, knowing yourself. So if you are an independent thinker um being aware of of why you believe what you believe and and being able to to find a way to navigate through that um not that we should address our own flaws and and do the self-work that we need to 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 make ourselves the even better version of ourselves but really i think that's probably the angle that i would have to take on this without having read it is I don't have any illusions that there's not 75 different versions of me that's probably on the low end in this world or country or even state. Um, but my uniqueness is the, the choices that I've made um, and that uh, and the comfort with, with those choices and, and being able to try to fit knowing who I am into, into those choices. But I, I'm really speaking from a place of ignorance because I've not read this article. I, I haven't read it either. But you, what, would you outline, Cole, like uh, fastidiousness to the truth, uh, independent spirit, and uh, curiosity? 
Is that right? But independent, independent mindedness. So the mindedness. resistance to being told what to think. And, so, I mean, and so when yeah. we talked about it offline, Scott, the thing that really stood out to me was about how this is sort of like smuggling in just basic science. <laughs> like it's like basically <laughs> saying, be a scientist if you want yeah. to think for yourself, yeah. which I really love. And that's why I was so surprised, Joy, when you're like said, well, there's, you know, 75 carbon copies of me out there. I was like, I don't really think so. I think you're pretty no, unique. Versions, versions of me. <laughs> but I do think you bring up a good point there. Um, I think there's a difference between learning how to think for yourself and learning uh, how to do what you're told. And so when you're learning something new, often the best way to learn it is just do what you're told. Trust the expertise of other people until you know enough about your own standing on it. And that's when you can start building your boundary conditions around where you're going to go. And, and, you know, again, if I read more details around this, I think that that might be hopefully what he's saying, because that's when you learn how to think for yourself, because you've combined your own self-knowledge with your past experience, and you can trust your judgment going forward. All right. Well, cool. Scott, do you want oh, to move I just on ended to the our... conversation topic. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no it, it really sounds like, uh, uh, just uh, as, as Cole mentioned, it's, it's just a rehash of the scientific method and or just a yeah. playbook for any sort of forget people are analytics research or just kind of any researcher uh, or even just like a life playbook, like, Hey, observe the world as you see it. Uh, mm -hmm. Don't rely on other folks the best you can. We know that network effects are pretty great. Uh, be open to other experiences and uh, don't accept uh, other people's BS. Uh, kind of. I think that's always good guidance. Definitely. And be willing to call it when you see it, which is really hard to do. But I don't think anybody who has done that really does truly regret it. When you, if you call it when you see it, even if it doesn't work out the way you want to, you can still take the fact that you stood up for what you know is correct. Yeah, like I'll, I mean, I'll maybe in the long term, in the short term, sometimes you in short term it hurts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it really does yeah. hurt. The, the short term it hurts, but like there's also like I'm going to tangent here. Uh, there, there's also these network effects. So people get caught in echo chambers where they just hear the same sort of quote unquote truth reiterated over and over, and that becomes all that they know. You see this on Twitter all the time. People get in these little like groups and like they spin up into mm, kind of like wild ideas, really. So how do you combat that? It's hard to, I think you do it through curiosity and exploring other groups, but boy, it's difficult. Well, we've talked about this before, is. Scott. I mean, the, the, the solution isn't to, you know, drum up science. It's to get off Twitter. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I do feel a lot better when I don't check Twitter for like two weeks. Definitely. Yeah. Well, Scott, do we have one more article to talk about today? Yeah, let's go on a high. So, uh, okay. Joy, do you, do you give a lot of compliments? Are you a compliment yes, person? I, yeah. I love that so much. Cole's never given me a compliment in my life, so I'm still waiting on this first one here. Still am I. One. It's okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm waiting well, for I him like to give you a compliment. You. He's been very complimentary <laughs> to me, but I'm waiting for one directed your way, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> Got me choked up here. Yeah. Excuse me. I th I think Scott is incredibly handsome. And oh, so I look just want to leave us with that. Look at that. Cole's got the best. But you should hair. try to compliment the thing that he values the most about himself. So Scott, do you define yourself <laughs> primarily by your good looks? 
I mean, I am the most vain person you will ever okay. meet, as as you can see by my wardrobe choices on a daily basis. Same here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also there, variants my appearance. Yeah. There, there, there's new research here that essentially says that uh, a compliment giver underestimates how positive that compliment will be received by the receiver. So they become reluctant to actually give it. So like uh, Cole, super handsome, Joy, super beautiful. I, I think that that's a three to five in my book. You guys might see it as a seven, eight, nine, ten. Who knows? So I think the, the takeaway is, hey, if, if you're feeling the need, go ahead and give that compliment. It's going to be really, really well received. So are they less likely to do it going forward? Or they just underestimate the positive effect. They underestimate the positive effect okay. and therefore okay. do not do it. Yeah. Oh, no. You are an excellent co-host of a podcast, Scott. <laughs> I think you're the best co-host of a podcast. Of a podcast called Directionally Correct. <laughs> of all the you, you podcasts called Directionally Correct. You need to have some specificity in a compliment. Yeah. Actually, I saw some uh, uh, research last night on uh, Twitter as well, because, like, you know, I like I hate myself and get on Twitter every night, sort of do doom scroll <laughs> as, as one does, you know. But it, it was like semi related to this and essentially show it was granted, it was like, I think it was elementary school kids or something like that. So uh, bear in mind the sample that they used. But essentially, the positive comments that were delivered by teachers were remembered for three months out, but the negative wow. comments were not. So I, I, I take some exception there because like there's some devastating comments that I've received in the past, you know, but those positive comments have a greater impact than the negative ones. So That's surprising and really great. Um, I have four small children um, and we've gotten some feedback in the past from folks with a lot more expertise in child development than we have mm -hmm. to, to try to catch them doing the right thing. And remind them, like, I see you, I see what you're doing, I see how happy you're making that person that you did just did something nice for, and that that actually makes it a little bit more sticky. If you, yeah, I love right? that, Joy. That is the yeah. best. Well, it's, it's not for me, it's just passing on <laughs> so <laughs> expertise of others. But I, I did, you know, we try to take that as seriously as, as we can, although it's extremely infrequent sometimes in our house, um, with very, young children and a lot of noise and chaos but whenever we, we can we're always trying to call them out and I heard you do that I saw you say that and and usually when you preface something with that kids start to get a little nervous but um we've right. tried to turn it around like I saw you do that good thing you know I, I think when you kind of the onus is on you to be extremely observant yes. too yeah. and self-aware. And I, I imagine that's probably challenging if you're tired with four children. I, I think you also yeah. hit on something like really <laughs> critical there uh, is for like going back to like the innovation cycles, like you're passing on the expertise of others and hopefully uh, we're doing this in this podcast and uh, yeah. you too, Joy. No, I, th I think what y'all are doing is, I, I wish I had something like this in school, not just for people analytics, just, just in general, because um, I ended up partially going into IO psychology because an alumni of my undergrad um, came back and did a presentation on it at the time. I think she was working for Pepsi and I didn't know what it was mm -hmm. and it, it will always stick with me. Um, 
and it it's funny because I, I now know her best friend very well and um I haven't seen the original speaker in probably 20 years but um and I, I the the points that she made just always stuck with me and and I, I think shared expertise even if it's just something that's communicated verbally if it hits you at the right development time um absolutely it, it, yeah it, it can be really sticky and helpful well i think you're proving the researcher's point here you remember the good things and you forget the bad things you know well right? i think if i remembered all the bad things i would be really sad and um, <laughs> i've got enough on my plate so <laughs> well i mean like uh, <laughs> Nietzsche talks about this. Like, if you remember the bad stuff, uh, that's the weakness of the soul. It's it's the people that are uh, blessed by forgetfulness that are not bothered by negative com uh, comments, etc. That's why, uh, oh, I don't know. You might remember being bullied in, like, seventh grade. That bully doesn't remember that incident. It's, you have, like, a weaker soul, as he talks about, anyway. Is that where the root of ignorance is bliss comes from? Uh, it's very similar concept, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that came from Nietzsche. Uh, I have an undergrad degree in philosophy, and I can't remember any of these uh, writers <laughs> particularly well. So I, if, if I don't have Google open, I'm a little out of my depth on this. I'm, I'm not um, going to say I'm an optimist, because I'm certainly not. But um, I do look for reasons to enjoy other people's company. And I, yeah, because I like other people in general. Um, so I, I think if you do try to focus on the positive things that they're sharing with you or their expertise, it just really does make it easier. That's the uh, youngest child vibe I get from you, Joy. Well, it's just the please don't leave me out. I don't care where you're going. Take me with you. FOMO. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm going to make really bad choices because I'm going to go along with you, but I'm going to have a great time. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we were able to manufacture the serendipity of having these connections and these positive <laughs> times on the podcast, Joy. Yeah, I've, I've just really enjoyed listening to you to talk, especially because you've known each other for a while, but you don't get to inside baseball or inside jokes even. Your contact is very accessible to people that don't know or feel very well. And even when I told you I'm, I'm not a people analytics expert. Scott said, don't worry about it. We'll figure out something to talk about. And I, I just think your openness actually makes you better hosts. Well, speaking of inside baseball, I do want to chat about the Tennessee-Alabama game after we get off the Let's call. Go. But uh, yeah. this, this yeah. has been fun. I know, Thanks Scott, do you have anything else that you wanted to cover today? Uh, no, no. I, uh, Joey, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Uh, would you say that uh, all opinions are those of your employer or those opinions of your own? All opinions expressed here are the opinions of only Joy Oliver and do not reflect any opinions stated or otherwise of my employer. <laughs> I love it. Fair enough. Well, you have been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and Scott. Um, thanks for joining us today, Joy. Thanks, y'all. It was really great catching up and talking to you, and thanks for your time. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization.